Also, on Saturday morning at 10.30, we'll be having the memorial service for Tony Franklin. And we need to be in prayer for his uh, parents, Morgan and Sharon, for his brother Travis, and for the service. They, uh, last I heard, they're expecting uh, a lot of people, five, six, seven hundred people maybe, because of, you know, for a variety of reasons. But there's it's always pretty large when it's an unexpected death of a, of a young person. So it's a great opportunity to get the gospel to a lot of people who really need to hear it. So please be in prayer for that. Also, um, we're working on the details for the Israel trip. Still have some things to work out on the D.C. trip, but be uh, be focused on that. So those are the main announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the word. And after a few moments, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed so grateful for your grace, grateful for our salvation and all that went into the planning, the preparation, and especially that which took place in the hours before the cross leading up to that time on the cross. And of course, we rejoice in the fact that the grave could not keep our Lord down, that he rose from the dead and we have new life in him. And we have victory over death. Father, we pray that as we study tonight and we reflect upon this, that that you will help us to uh, understand the things that happened. And as the resurrection is a focal point of attack on Christianity, we pray that we might be able to formulate our answers uh, for the hope that is within us. Father, we also pray for these who we've been uh, ministering to within our body who have had deaths in their families the last uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, Giselle uh, Dold, as well as the Franklins, and we pray that you would comfort them with the comfort with which we've been comforted that is mediated through your word. And we're thankful that you, we have you to comfort us and to strengthen us in times of difficulty times of challenge, times of grief. And we pray that tonight will be a profitable time for us spiritually as we investigate the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right. We are in our 17th lesson in this sub-series on giving an answer uh, based on 1 Peter 3.15 in our exposition going verse by verse through 1 Peter that... Um, we have come to this verse, and many times I stop and I pause, and we have four or five lessons on a particular topic, but I've never really drilled down and done a topical study on apologetics, so I thought that was something that was needed, something important. The last few weeks we've been focusing on three basic questions that most people ask. First of all, can we trust the Bible? And we spent a couple of times looking at the facts on that. And then who was Jesus, his claims to be God, the fulfilled prophecy in the life of Christ that he was indeed who he claimed to be, the Son of God and the Messiah, who was promised and prophesied uh, from the creation. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is the first prophecy of a coming Messiah. And that he... Uh, was exactly who he claimed to be. He was the Lord, the Son of God, the Messiah. And if you don't believe that he is who he claimed to be, we saw last time there's only two other options, and that is that he's either a liar who was intentionally deceiving people, which doesn't fit any of the facts, or he was absolutely 
crazy. He was a, a lunatic. He was a nut job. He was psychotic. And that doesn't fit any of the evidence. So the only thing that people are left with is the naked truth that Jesus is the Son of God. That's who he claimed to be, and that's who he has to be. And you either accept that or you just reject it. One of the greatest evidences, if not the greatest evidence, of the truth of Scripture and the claims of Jesus is the resurrection, because Jesus, as a prophet, prophesied his own resurrection. And uh, most people just aren't too successful at doing that. In fact, last time I had a great quote from Napoleon, which I was asked about and traced it back to memoirs from one of the French generals who was on uh, St. Helena Island with him during his final exile and published three volumes of the uh, conversations with him during that time. And it's also reported that during that time, Napoleon was asked what would be required to create a new religion. And his reply was, well, it would just be simple. You have to predict your death. You have to die, and then you have to rise from the dead three days later. That's the focal point of Christianity, as we saw last time, that no other religion has a founder or leader that rose from the dead. Abraham is in the grave. Moses is in the grave. Buddha is in the grave. Muhammad is in the grave. There is no other religion where the founder died and rose from the dead. Now, the basic question, the basic passages, we'll look at this in a minute. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Mark 16, 1 to 11. Luke 24, 1 through 12. John 21 through 18 all describe the resurrection uh, of Jesus. Regarding the resurrection... Wilbur Smith. Now, who was Wilbur Smith? This quote comes from a book that he wrote called A Great Certainty in This Hour of World Crisis. Crises, plural. It was published in 1951. Wilbur Smith was a professor of English Bible at Moody Bible Institute. He later taught at Fuller Theological Seminary and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He wrote one work called Therefore Stand, a book on Christian apologetics, and another book on the supernaturalness of Jesus. He wrote a number of scholarly articles that were published in different journals. But he had an outstanding concept of the pastoral ministry. His expectation for conscientious pastors was that they would read a hundred books a year, That's two a week. And his own library, his own personal library, contained 25,000 volumes. That is the standard that every pastor should shoot for. I'm going to take a plug here. We have so minimized the requirements for a pastor that you have to go through more training to be an electrician, an air conditioner repairman, or a plumber than to be ordained in 99.9% of the better churches, okay? I'm not talking about the apostates, the -the off-the-wall people who get their ordination via the Internet or mail-in. I'm talking about Bible churches and Bible colleges. We have a low standard. It was not that way. 150 years ago, if you were on the frontier in America and you ran across an itinerant pastor, he would have his Greek text and often a Hebrew text in his saddlebags from which he would preach when he preached. And most of the people in the pew had enough understanding of the Greek to where they could follow along in their Greek text. That was back when Americans truly understood education and respected education, and expected a pastor to be educated, and expected the men in the church to be educated. And at least 10 or 15 in any congregation on the frontier were able to follow along in the original languages. So we, in our technically advanced culture, are very, very uneducated and ignorant compared to three or four generations ago. That's why so many people can get deceived, is they're not educated. Now, education doesn't have anything to do with skill. 
A doctor isn't educated. He is trained at a scientific skill. An education is what you get in a liberal arts degree. When you have read the great classics of literature and philosophy and theology, and that formed the core curriculum of every kid in America, you understood rhetoric. That's the proper use of language. And grammar, that's the proper way to write. All of this was the core curriculum. And once you destroy those core ideas that teach people to think and to reason and to communicate, you destroy a culture. Because when people can't think anymore, they're ripe for deception and they're ripe for destruction. This is what's happened in the churches. I was pleased this last week to learn that there was a Gallup poll that was taken recently and an article published about it this week on the Internet that said that there seems to be a turning point that in a rec- this recent Gallup poll that the a large, much larger percentage than they've seen in recent polls uh, of Christians are turning to a, a, a desire to have a pastor that teaches the Bible verse by verse. Now, that's a step in the right direction. But I, what I was pleased with is the uh, guy who wrote this article said, now the problem with this is that, that 80% of these pastors out there that are determining what they're going to do because of the way the polls run, they're suddenly going to adopt verse-by-verse teaching because that's becoming the new popular thing to do. And then he said, and if you're a pastor and you do that, then you're basically what he was saying, you're part of the problem and not the solution because as soon as the next poll comes out and people want something else, then you'll shift to something else. The only thing that's going to build real health into the body of Christ is verse by verse Bible teaching because then you're not, you don't have a pastor who's teaching his little um, uh, desires and his favorite hobby horses. You're going to cover everything in the Bible and teach the whole counsel of God, and that only comes by uh, verse by verse Bible teaching. So, Wilbur Smith was a strong advocate of that, and um, I don't have 25,000 volumes, but I'm not financially equipped to have had that many. I've got, probably counting the electronics, I probably have about 15,000. So, we have to be educated and read widely. Now, this was what Wilbur Smith wrote in his book, A Great Certainty in This Hour of World Crises. He said, It was this same Jesus, the Christ, who, among many other remarkable things, said and repeated something which, proceeding from any other being, would have condemned him at once as either a bloated egotist or a dangerously unbalanced person. Now, what argument was that that he just referenced? Come on. Lord, liar, lunatic. That was what that he just summarized it in slightly different words. That Jesus said he was going up to Jerusalem to die. Excuse me. That Jesus said he was going up to Jerusalem to die is not so remarkable, though all the details he gave about that death, weeks and months before he died, are together a prophetic phenomenon. But when he said that he himself would rise again from the dead the third day after he was crucified, he said something that only a fool would dare say. If he expected longer the devotion of any disciples, unless he was sure he was going to rise, no founder of any world religion known to men ever dared say a thing like that. Now, last time I went through some of these statements. For example, in John 2, 18, 19, Jesus said in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And in verse 21, we learned that he was speaking of the temple of his body. This was at the beginning of his ministry. So three to three and a half years before he died, he is already predicting his death and resurrection. In Matthew 12, uh, 38 to 40, especially in verse 40, he gives the sign of three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, the sign of Jonah. And 
then in Matthew 16:21 it says, "From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day." In Matthew 17:9, he's told them, "Tell no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead." In verses 22 and 23. He said, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Matthew 20, 18 and 19, he says, especially verse 19, he would be delivered to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. In Luke 9, 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. What was the disciples' response? They didn't understand it. As many times as he said it, they couldn't compute it. They didn't understand it. They were questioning what rising from the dead meant. So, there are those who challenge the resurrection for many different reasons and on different bases. And the reason is, is because as Paul, as I pointed out last time, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if the resurrection isn't true, then we are of all people to be pitied. Because the resurrection is the greatest evidence of who Jesus is and that he accomplished what he intended. It is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Remember, that we've studied many times Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Those two passages gave the Jews the criterion for uh, discerning a true prophet. And basically, it was that the prophet would predict accurately what would take place in the future. And if he wasn't 100% accurate, then he wasn't a true prophet. So Jesus is demonstrating he is that greater prophet. Remember in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 13, that that passage there validating a prophet precedes a very famous prophecy that there would be a prophet greater than Moses that would come, and that prophet is the messianic prophet who is Jesus. Jesus is that is that prophet. And so Jesus prophesies many times that he'll be crucified, that he'll be buried, and that he will rise from the dead on the third day. Not just that he will be crucified, but that he would be buried and rise from the dead, and specifically when that would be. So the crucifixion is critical. So we have to look at this from a couple of vantage points. One is the historical fact of the resurrection. Now, part of this goes back to what I covered three or four weeks ago talking about who is Jesus, the historical reality, the historical attestation that Jesus of Nazareth actually lived. Because there are some people who still claim, as I pointed out at that time, that, that uh, Jesus never existed, it was all made up. But there's too much evidence. There's extra biblical evidence from people who were not sympathetic to Christianity or the Bible who clearly affirmed the existence of God at that time. And I gave you quotes from uh, people like uh, Pliny the Younger and from Suetonius and from Tacitus and also from uh, Josephus as well as, as some others that attest to the historical existence of Jesus. And in the same way, you have in a couple of those quotes, uh, those references to the resurrection of Jesus, or at least the understanding that something miraculous happened, even though they may not have said specifically what it was, they indicated something uh, quite unusual had taken place. Well, there are some other statements that are made by uh, some early church fathers. Now, I go to these. I don't want to go too late because once you get two or three generations removed, those church fathers are just believing what the Bible says. But we want to look at the evidence from just after the completion of the Scripture. So I have basically three or four quotes here. One is from Clement of Rome. Clement is the 
uh, outside of, uh, is really the earliest known uh, pastor in Rome. Later, he's claimed to be not the first pope because the first pope, of course, is who? They think it was Peter. By the way, did you hear today that the spokesperson for the pope said, you know, came out and, you know, the most dangerous people in the world are conservative evangelicals and conservative Catholics? Now, the reason for that is because conservative Catholics and conservative evangelicals are the ones who are standing in opposition to all of the social justice movements and this present pope and the upper echelons of the Catholic Church, as well as other, many other groups, are committed to social justice, which is just a code word for uh, pure Marxism and communism. But... Uh, Clement is the first known pastor or bishop of Rome. He wrote an epistle to the Corinthians, and it's dated somewhere around 80 to 90 A.D. So the Apostle John is still alive, uh, probably none of the others at that time, but he would have known Peter, he would have known Paul, he was probably taught by both of them because they died approximately 20 years before uh, he wrote this. And he says, the apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness. He heard the apostle preach the apostolic message. He said, having therefore received their orders and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and established in the word of God with full assurance of the Holy Spirit, they went forth proclaiming. Now, about that same time, you have uh, writings by Josephus in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews. Now, I quoted from him a couple of classes back, and this is a passage that at that time I took out parts of it because they're disputed. However, I'm leaving those parts in now. There was a reason I wanted to... Let's just treat the quote as it was without these other disputed sections because... Even without the disputed sections, he attests to the existence of a historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. But these, this is putting it in there, and um, this is what the full quote states. When Pilate had condemned him to the cross upon his impeachment by the principal man among us, the, by the principal men among us, really. Uh, those who had loved him from the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive on the third day. This is Josephus. The divine prophets having spoken these and thousands of other wonderful things about him. Now, that is disputed. Now, I'm not a Josephus scholar, but what's interesting about this quote is that this quote, even though it could have been added, was quoted by Eusebius around 320 in his ecclesiastical history. Eusebius of Caesarea was uh, one of the major uh, theologians in the early 300s, in the early 4th century, who wrote a history of the church up to that time. And he quotes Josephus, and he quotes this passage from Josephus. So that's there at least at that time. There's another series, some of you may have seen it, it's called the Loeb Classical Library. And this is published, I think, by Harvard, and it is considered the scholarly works of, of all kinds of different people, the critical editions of Caesar and Cicero and Lord knows who else, uh, everybody down through the ages. So they have the definitive classical scholarly work on Josephus. And I understand it's not a translation by William Whiston, which is the one most of us get. It is a more recent translation. But they include this passage as legitimate. So even though there are some who contend that this wasn't in the original, obviously there are some people, some scholars, who do not have a Christian agenda who do accept it as, as legitimate. There's another quote from Ignatius. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch. Antioch was in the was the oldest church. As remember, Antioch is a city where they were first called Christians. And Antioch was up in what is today Syria. Ignatius was arrested and he was taken to Rome where he was martyred. And along the way, he wrote uh, several uh, 
epistles to different churches that are quite valuable for understanding what was believed at that time. And he also wrote to a man named Polycarp. Now, he knew Polycarp because both Ignatius and Polycarp were personally trained and taught by the Apostle John. So that's another person who is getting uh, the eyewitness report from one of the men who was at the, at the empty tomb. And he says, uh, he was crucified and died under Pontius Pilate. He really, and not merely in appearance, see by that time that, that heresy called docetism had come in where Jesus didn't actually die, just appeared. That's kind of been picked up by both the, uh, uh, by the Muslims, by Islam. Islam believes Jesus didn't die, he, he left. This was a substitute person who died, and so Jesus didn't really physically die on the cross. Uh, so Ignatius says differently. He says, not merely in appearance, was crucified and died in the sight of beings in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He also rose again in three days. And later he says, on the day of the preparation, that would be Friday, preparation for Shabbat. Then at the third hour, he received the sentence from Pilate, the father permitting that that to happen. At the sixth hour, he was crucified. At the ninth hour, he gave up the ghost. And before sunset, he was buried. During the Sabbath, he continued under the earth in the tomb in which Joseph of Arimathea had laid him. He really died and was buried and rose from the dead. Then Polycarp, who I just mentioned, also a disciple of the Apostle John, said, The Lord Jesus Christ endured to come so far as to, as to death for our sins, whom God raised at having loosed the pains of death. Now, these are, all of these are written before 120 A.D. So within the 90 years after the death of Christ, you have the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels. You have the accounts of the Apostle Paul and Luke in Acts who were there to interview eyewitnesses in Israel at the time. And then you have their students who all believed this. Now, let's put this in a historical context. All of these writings are written within a period of anywhere from, from 30 to 90 years after the death of Christ. So let's say somebody came along today and wrote a, an, an apocryphal biography of President John F. Kennedy and claimed that he rose from the dead or claimed that he prayed and there were some miracles that happened. All of us who were alive at that time would completely scoff at all of those contentions and laugh about it because we were alive at the time. And that's the same thing with the gospel accounts and with these other writers. They made these claims and wrote their, uh, their comments during a time when eyewitnesses were still alive and could easily refute their claims. And, of course, that did not happen. So what I want to look at tonight is this topic of Jesus' death. And the reason this is important to look at the historical reality of Jesus' death is before you can be resurrected, you have to die. And one, a couple of the uh, ways to try to get around the truth of the resurrection is to claim that either A, Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that's called the swoon theory, that he passed out, or that his body was stolen. Now, we'll address the body stolen idea next time, but today I want us to think through what the Bible says, what the historical records tell us about the death of Jesus. And so we'll break this down in terms of looking at what happened before his death, prior to the crucifixion, what happened at the time of the crucifixion, what happened after the crucifixion? Okay, we're just going to look at those three things. We're not going to get, we'll get right up to the burial, and then we will come back and talk about uh, the evidence of the burial next time. Now, what we see is that 
Um, before the crucifixion, Jesus had suffered incredible emotional distress, as described in uh, the scriptures. But one of the passages that we'll look at in Luke 22:44, which talks about him sweating blood, gives evidence of the intensity of that emotional distress. It is a, a medical condition that is known as uh, hematidrosis, and this is when uh, the blood, the pressure is so great that the blood in the capillaries just under the skin push out. The pressure is so great that it's pushed out through the skin and, uh, and a person uh, sweats blood. And at that same time that he is undergoing that distress in the Garden of Gethsemane, his, uh, he's betrayed by one of his closest friends. All of his friends will leave him just after that, and then he will begin to endure several beatings, physical beatings. So what we're told in the scripture is that as he was at Gethsemane, he departed from his from the uh, main group of disciples, and he took Peter and John with him. Uh, uh, excuse Peter and James and John with him to go off by himself where he would pray. He left them as sort of a guard and he separated from them where he went uh, to pray. And so we're told in verses uh, 37-38, Matthew 26, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Now the word there for sorrowful, the verb there is uh, based on the root lupeo, which is the word for sorrow and for grief. And it can also have the idea of, of anxiety. Now, this is a tough concept for a lot of Christians to deal with because we know Jesus didn't sin. So grieving and being sorrowful in and of itself isn't a sin. That's what, what uh, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he's asked the question, well, what about Christians who die? What happens to them? And he says, well, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. It's the, the grief, the sorrow, the emotion in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. It's what we do with it when it becomes sinful. That's why I pointed out when we studied in, in the Psalms many times that, that David expresses his anger to God. It's not that he stays angry with God, but things happen and he responds with frustration, with anger, and he says, God, I just don't understand what's going on. And I pointed out that that's important for us to be honest with God, not just say, oh, well, it must be your will, it's okay. And we're not being honest with God or, or ourselves. But you don't just end there. You don't stay angry. And, and the Psalms give us a process whereby the believer moves from being angry, upset, uh, confused, anxious, and thinks through the character of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God. And as you read through those Psalms, you see how David gets his um, mind refocused as he thinks through the character, the plan, the purpose of God. And by the end of the Psalms, he's expressing his joy and his praise for God. That's how the believer is supposed to handle these uh, unpleasant emotions that we get at times, the sorrow, the grief. Jesus is doing that. What's he, he, he's experiencing the sorrow that comes from the intensity of being betrayed and his anticipation of what's going to happen at the cross. And what does he do about it? He doesn't rant and rave and he doesn't blow off steam. He goes and he talks to the Father about it. And he is in prayer about it. And he's Verse 37 says, He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. In verse 38, He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Of course, we know they fell asleep. He had to come back three times. What, you guys are sleeping on the job? Then He would go back and pray some more. And Luke 22:44 tells us that He was in agony. So this is an extremely intense emotional time. He prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
As I said, it's a, a genuine medically known phenomena. It's rare, and it's called uh, hematidrosis, and it occurs with people who are in a highly emotional state. Now, I am going to be quoting several times from an article by a medical doctor by the name of Edwards and a number of others. It was a group effort. It was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in March 21st, 1986. Barb is going to upload it and attach it to uh, this lesson on the website so people can read it. it. There's a number of different articles like this. You can search them on the Internet and find some, but they are they're fascinating. A doctor looking at the, the medical realities of crucifixion and what's happening during these, these last hours of uh, Christ's life. According to this article, Luke's description supports the diagnosis of hematidrosis rather than other options. And although some authors have suggested that uh, hematidrosis produced some other things, it was more likely that Jesus' actual blood loss with hematidrosis was minimal. So he's not bleeding to death. This is, this is something that is quite minimal. But the impact of it in the cool night air in Jerusalem, and this is the first week of April, would have produced chills. So what we see here, it not only would have produced uh, chills, it produces a, a weakening and a thinning of the skin. Okay, now if you think about what's coming up with the beatings and the, and the flogging, all of that begins to set the stage for just the horrors that he's going to go through, uh, go through physically. Then he's arrested, and he has to go uh, on trial. There are going to be six trials. He is taken from the Garden of Gethsemane to the uh, house of Annas, who was the genuine high priest, but he had been uh, removed from office by the Romans and replaced by his son-in-law Caiaphas. So let's look at a map here. This gives us a picture of the what is the what we call the old city today in Jerusalem. And if you look at it, I've, I've blown it up a little bit so you can't see the scale. But from the east side over here, where you have the the eastern gate to the Temple Mount, all the way over here to the western side, and where I put the arrow over here, neither near the. Uh, uh, where th this map puts the Praetorium and Herod's Palace. That's over by the Jaffa Gate. Now, many of you who have gone with me to Israel realize you can walk that in about, in less than 15 minutes. It's, it's not much more than a mile across. Jerusalem is pretty small, the old city in that, in that particular area. This is approximately where the Garden of Gethsemane, this whole side, the western side of the Mount of Olives, which is covered with olive groves. That's why it's called the Mount of Olives. And so part of that was the Garden of Gethsemane, which can still be visited today. The other thing I want to point out here is that according to this map, which is from Lagos Bible Software, and I think is more up to date, current scholarship believes that the Praetorium, which is where Pontius Pilate's headquarters was, was located over here on the west side of the city, right near, if you remember going in the Jaffa Gate there, you make that right turn, you go down by Christ Church, and they have the Citadel of David. It's right in that area. Uh, it's where Herod's fortress, Herod uh, Antipas had his palace, and that's also where uh, the Praetorium would be. Now, for many, many years, probably centuries, it was thought that this area here, the uh, Mark Anthony Barracks, Mark, uh, the Antonia Fortress is named for Mark Antony, that this is the area where the Praetorium was located. And that would have Jesus hiking back and forth across here two or three times. And that would, of course, be much longer. But if the Praetorium is located over here right next to Herod's palace, uh, it's not that far. Here's, um, uh, they have Herod Antipas's palace here. I've seen it located. See, here you have Herod's palace. Herod's, you know, that's sort of guesswork right in there. But um, it's right in this area where they have Herod Antipas's palace. No, they, they put the high priest's house down here uh, in the Essene quarter, I think, from... 
what we've seen. It's probably more in this area. Point is, he's not walking. He's walking a lot, maybe a mile and a half, back and forth the whole night, maybe two miles. Older, older commentaries thought it's three or four miles. So it's not as much because these places aren't that that far apart. Here is the uh, site of today, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the traditional location uh, of Golgotha, and that's less than 200 yards from the Praetorium. Okay? Some of you have been there. It's not that far. We're not talking huge, hour-long, 15, even 15-minute 15 treks. We're talking five minutes to walk from one place uh, to another. Here's another map. And uh, in this uh, map, it doesn't have... It has the palace of the high priest. See here, that's where I pointed out that it should be according to the uh, the other map. And then this is a little bit of a 3D map over here. This area, the upper right-hand corner, would be where uh, Gethsemane was located. Jesus would have been brought in probably through a, the, the gate here that's called St. Stephen's Gate. That's where Stephen was, was stoned to death. Would have come in this way. And then over here you had uh, Herod's uh, palace. This was where the praetorium would have been. And over in this area here is where the uh, high priest's house would be. The high priest didn't live that far from the this was a walkway or a bridge that went into the temple. It only makes sense that the high priest is not going to be way down here somewhere where it's more of a walk to get to get over to the, the temple mount. So he goes to Annas. Annas is the high priest, and Annas sends him uh, to Caiaphas. And then he's going to be interrogated by Caiaphas, and then there's going to be a trial by the Sanhedrin. Those are the three... Um, the three Jewish trials at the beginning. And after he's interrogated by Annas in John 18.22, we read that uh, after that had happened, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, you answer the high priest like that? So he just, he, he, he hits him with the open palm. So that's when the beating, the physical beatings began to, to start. Then he goes to Caiaphas, and we read in Mark 14:65 that at that meeting with Caiaphas, then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him. And this, the tense here indicates it's just an ongoing activity. They're just starting to just beat the snot out of him. And to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. The officers struck him with the palms of their hands. And Matthew writes it this way, Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands. And Edwards writes in this article I've been quoting, These physical and emotional factors may have rendered Jesus particularly vulnerable to the adverse hemodynamic effects of the scourging. So he's not to the point where they're scourging him yet, but in, you've got the, the hematidrosis, all of that weakens the skin. Now he's being beaten, and all of this starts to break things down. Then the next thing we see is that actually, if we combine sources, there are two scourgings. And I'm not going to get into all the details of this. We'll get into this again when we get there in Matthew. John tells us about the first scourging, and he doesn't mention a second scourging. The others mention a scourging, but they say then he was scourged and he went to the, and they went to crucify him. What happens in math in John is he talks about Pilate taking Jesus to scourge him, and then there he comes back out to the crowd and says, "You want me to release him?" And then he goes back to Jesus and has another conversation with Jesus. Now, if the serious scourging had already taken place, Jesus isn't going to be having much of a conversation by that point. So it seems like there's two scourgings that take place, at the one at the beginning and one at the end of the last trial with, uh, uh, with, with Pilate. So we're told Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head. They put on him, on him a purple robe. And then they began to mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they uh, struck him with their hands. Now, there are different words that are used in all of these accounts. 
are words that indicate that he's punched with a fist, some that indicate that he's slapped open-handedly, and others that indicate that he is just uh, beaten uh, very uh, intensely. But the, the intense beating and the intense flagellation that is going to come comes right before he's, he's uh, put on the cross. And so all of this represents for us how the physical suffering, and what does Isaiah 53 say? Like a lamb before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He is being tortured and beaten unmercifully, yet he will not say a word. He says nothing whatsoever. Now, what happens at the second scourging is that he would be completely stripped down to nothing. Then they would tie him around a pillar, or they would have him bend down over a low post. His hands would be tied so that the skin of his back is uh, as tight as it can possibly be. And then the uh, one with the whip will use a, it's like a cat of nine tails, and he is going to uh, whip. This cat of nine tails has pieces of iron and bone and rock and glass woven into it, so it's designed to completely shred the back. It's designed to not only cut through the skin, but to rip the muscle and the sinew off of the bones. And it, they, they had these, these uh, Roman lictors had experience, so they knew just how far to go. They didn't want to kill the victim who was going to be crucified. They didn't want to kill them before they got him to the cross. The idea was to take them to the point of death, but to keep them alive in suffering for maybe two or three days, if possible. It was an absolutely uh, horrendous type of death uh, by, by crucifixion. And so here we have a picture of the type of scourging that took place over here on the left. There's a picture of the uh, flagrum and shows it has a short wooden handle and then the braided thongs with with uh, six, seven, eight, nine different uh, uh, strips of leather into which these bones and and glass and metal balls are are woven. The person would be tied like this to a post, and then he is worked over very precisely uh, by the lictor. This picture here is a is a picture looking down. So you're looking down, here's the head, here are the arms that are around the post, and then here is the uh, lictor standing off to the, this would be the left arm, and he is flogging from, from the victim's left. And then the, he would also stand to the right so that they're driving uh, toward uh, the spine to just completely destroy and so it weakens them. There would be significant blood loss at this time. First Peter two twenty four says refers to this as a quoting from Isaiah fifty three that who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are you were healed. Uh, Weist, in his word studies, First um, uh, Peter 2.24 says that the word stripes in the Greek text is singular in number. We translate it with a plural as stripes or wounds, but it's one wound. That's what would come out. It is so horrible. There is just one massive welt on the back. He says the word refers to a bloody whale trickling with blood that arises under a blow. Our Lord's back was so lacerated by the scourge that it was one mass of open, raw, quivering flesh trickling with blood, not a series of stripes or, cut, or cuts, 
but one mass of torn flesh. Eusebius of Caesarea again describes crucifixion and says that the veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Isaiah puts it this way. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And the word well-being in the flow of Isaiah 53 is talking about salvation. And by his scourging, we are healed. Healing there isn't talking about physical healing. Sometimes your your, uh, uh, healing evangelists try to talk about, see, there's healing for disease in the cross. Now, that's a misconstruction, a misinterpretation of the passage. The healing here is healing from the penalty of sin. So all of this describes the scourging. Now, according to this medical article in the Journal of uh, the American Medical Association, they write that as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. So now we come to the crucifixion. And in this particular uh, diagram, we see the nomenclature for uh, the parts of the cross. The upright vertical piece is called the stipes. The uh, horizontal piece is called the patibulum, which probably this is called a tau-shaped for the Greek letter tau, T-A-U, is a tau shape like a capital T. There's also the cross that we're more familiar with. But when you look at um, at this, the whole cross probably weighed three, over 300 pounds. So Jesus probably wasn't carrying the whole cross through the streets of Jerusalem. He was probably just carrying the patibulum, which would have weighed between 75 and 125 pounds. So he would have carried that. Then that would have been, he would have been lifted via ladders. That would have been lifted up on the cross. And the cross wasn't that high. Usually we see these pictures uh, based on the hymn on a hill far away. So they've got Jesus lifted up high. His feet were probably only uh, six or ten inches off of the ground. They weren't lifting him. They didn't need to lift him eight or ten feet up into the air. They just needed to make sure his feet wouldn't touch the ground. And so they would have nailed his hands uh, first to the patibulum, and then they would have raised that up on top of the stipes, and then they would have nailed his feet uh, to the cross. Crucifixion was a form of torture that had originally developed in Persia, where sometimes uh, the victim would be tied to a tree or to a post or impaled on an upright post. The idea was to keep their feet from touching the ground and to extend their life as long as possible. Over time, they developed the use of a cross, a true cross as we see it, and archaeological evidence shows that the, in the Middle East, the tau-shaped cross was performed by Romans, but this would, we can't say for sure what it was at the time because this would vary from, from place to place depending on some local customs. In this diagram, we see how the nail was placed. It was placed just below the wrist. It's uh, placed in there where it would, uh, 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 intersect with the ulnar artery and those, the, all of those nerves that were going through to the, uh, to, to the wrist and to the hand. If you've had any problems, as I have with carpal tunnel syndrome and how that's just a, a minor, 
uh, irritation compared to the pain that would be endured when that ulnar nerve and artery was intersected by the by the spike as it's depicted in this uh, uh, diagram here uh, on the on the right. Then when the feet are attached, usually we think of the feet being overlaid, but what we've discovered via archaeology is the picture on the right is a nail that goes through the ankle bone where it was more likely that the feet were placed on each side of the stipes and then a an, the iron spike was driven in through the ankle bone. And so it would make it extremely painful to try to press yourself up uh, as, you were, as you were dying. So let me read another... Uh, another section for you from this article says that the scourging prior to crucifixion served to weaken the condemned man and if blood loss was considerable to produce orthostatic hypotension and even hypovolemic shock. So Jesus is going into shock. Uh, one of the things that they would try to do to alleviate this was to give them a mix of myrrh and vinegar, which, which he refused. So he didn't take an anesthetic. Uh, when the victim, the article goes on to say, when the victim was thrown to the ground on his back in preparation for transfixing his hands, his scourging wounds would most likely be torn open again and contaminated with dirt. Furthermore, with each respiration, the painful scourging wounds would be scraped against the roughed wood of the stipes. As a result, blood loss from the back probably would continue throughout the crucifixion ordeal. With arms outstretched but not taut, the wrists were nailed to the pataboam. It had been shown that the ligaments and bones of the wrist can support the weight of a body hanging from them, but the palms cannot. Accordingly, the iron spikes probably were driven between the radius and the carpals or between the two rows of carpal bones, either proximal to or through the strong band-like flexor uh, retinaculum and the various intercarpal ligaments. Although a nail in either location of the wrist might pass between the bony elements and thereby produce no fractures, the likelihood of painful periosteal injury would seem great. Furthermore, the driven nail would crush or sever the rather large uh, sensory motor median nerve. The stimulated nerve would produce excruciating. Notice that verb excruciate. Those of you who have taken Latin, break it down. Excruciate. Where does cruci come from? Cruciform, cross. Out of the cross. That's where that word excruciating comes from is out of the cross. So it would produce excruciating uh, bolts of fiery pain in both arms. Although the severed median nerve would result in paralysis of a portion of the hand, ischemic contractures and impalement of various ligaments by the iron spike might produce a claw-like grass. So that pretty much explains how horrible it was. And eventually death would be produced either from shock or through exhaustion. It could also uh, involve dehydration, stress-induced arrhythmias, congestive heart failure with a rapid accumulation of pericardial and perhaps pleural effusions. Okay, that's the... Doctor speaking. It was so horrible that one of the great Roman uh, legislators and orators of the time, Marcus Tullius Cicero, said, "Even the mere word cross must remain far not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears." Now, we come to the death of Jesus. How do we know he died? After all of this, and the reason I'm laboring over this is after we understand how painful this was, how much blood's been lost, he's in deep shock. How can anybody get the idea that he just passed out and woke up the next day and somehow crawled out of the tomb? It's not conceivable.
How do we know he died? There are two, uh, two issues that come up. One is, why did he die so soon? And the other is, what was the blood and the water or blood and the serum? And so he is put on the cross. John 19.32 says, And the soldiers came, uh, because it was getting close to dark, so they needed to make sure that these guys were dead, the two thieves and Jesus, because with sundown, the... Uh, Passover time, the Passover day would begin, and it was uh, it, it was it was going into the day of uh, unleavened bread, which was and the Sabbath, which is when uh, they no work could be done, so they had to be off the cross by then. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. That's a fulfillment of the prophecy in Scripture that just like the Passover lamb, no bone would be broken. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately John says, blood and water came out. Notice what John says next. He says, and he who has seen has testified, his testimony is true. He says, this is true, believe me, blood and water came out. Now, it looks to him like blood and water, but we know that what has happened is the blood has separated into the, the red blood cells on the one hand and, the, and serum or limp on the other hand so that it's separated into what looks like clear fluid and, and then, the, uh, then the red fluid. Um, this indicates that death has indeed taken place. Um, based on the medical evidence here, the writers of this article on the physical death of G- Jesus, which um, uh, is written by uh, the medical consultants at the time, were with the Mayo Clinic in, in Minnesota, said that, the water probably represented serous, pleural, and pericardial fluid and would have preceded the flow of blood and been smaller in volume than the blood. Perhaps in the setting of hypovolemia and impending acute heart failure, pleural and pericardial effusions may have developed and would have added to the volume of apparent water. The blood, in contrast, may have originated from the right atrium or the right ventricle or perhaps from a hemopericardium. However, in the article, there are several articles who attempt to describe this, but the bottom line is you die by, by uh, suffocation because the, the, with the pressure of the, of the or internal organs against the diaphragm, it's almost impossible for the victim of crucifixion to breathe, to get the room in his, in his, um, uh, in his torso to lift up in order to expand his diaphragm to take in air. He has to be able to stretch up, and sooner or later they just give out. And as they, they hang and collapse, the, the organs internally are pushed together and they just have no room, room to breathe. Once they die, you have this separation occur between the blood and the serum that, that collects uh, in the, above the diaphragm. And so when the spear comes up, it pierces that diaphragm and then it comes out in blood and what would have appeared to John to be blood and water. The significance of that is that it shows that Jesus had died by then. That doesn't happen unless you're dead. It's always uh, after death. So that makes it very, very clear that Jesus had died. So all of the evidence indicates that by the time Jesus is taken off the cross, it's very clear that he has died. I want to conclude by going back to Isaiah 53, 5 and following. He was wounded for our transgressions. The horrors of his death are due to our sin. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace, that is our peace with God, was upon him. And by his stripes, that's by the wounds, were healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Notice twice he makes that point that he was silent. And in verse 11, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That is, God the Father will see the labor of God the Son and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. But it doesn't stop with his death. He died on Friday, but on Sunday he will be alive again. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the evidence that we have of Christ's death, the details that are given in Scripture, the horrors that are revealed which reinforce the reality that he did indeed die and the necessity of having that information so that we can be sure that when he is out of the tomb, that it is not because he simply passed out or came to and somehow dragged himself out, but that he was truly dead and that a miracle occurred and he was given new life and he rose from the dead. And that is our pattern that we gives us hope that there is life after death and just as he ascended to heaven, so we will in a body like his, a new body, a resurrection body, that will be ours for all eternity, not subject to pain or to sorrow, not subject to all of the uh, mortal and, uh, problems of life, but that you will indeed uh, give us this new body. It gives us great hope, and that is our confidence, our victory over death because of his resurrection. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.